2: iconic symbols of ancient Egypt continue to fascinate us, the massive 4,500-year-old Giza pyramids, wonders of the ancient world, still dominating the desert west of Cairo, and the gold mummy mask and coffin of the boy king Tutankhamun. As we mark the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb, we're prompted to reflect on why ancient Egypt still captivates us.
3: This is our human history. This is our shared past. This is the bits and pieces that make us who we are today.
2: I'm Seth and This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute.
1: I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, our enduring interest in ancient Egypt and what remains to be discovered Are there secrets still wrapped up in mummies? Are there rooms in the tombs that have eluded archaeologists' eyes? Find out how modern instruments might answer these questions to provide insights into an ancient civilization. This episode is Tomb with a View.
2: You know what kicked off that King Tut craze many of us remember from the 1970s, if you're old enough to remember, was a traveling international King Tut exhibit. King Tut had come to us. At least, his mascot and his scepter. It was so wow because it was stuff people made 4,000 years ago and all gold and shiny. It made an impression.
1: Well, Seth, the way that the public experiences King Tut and his treasure has changed since those days. Egyptian artifacts are less likely to go on tour. They stay in Egypt. That includes those from King Tut's tomb. But science reporter and archeologist Emma Bentley was still able to experience a descent into the famous chamber of the Valley of the Kings. And she gives us a quick tour of National Geographic's traveling virtual exhibit, Beyond King Tut, the immersive experience, where visitors can see the eye-popping archeological discovery that captivated the world 100 years ago.
0: I'm just coming into the National Geographic Museum in Washington, DC, where the Beyond King Tut exhibition has opened. And this is a truly intriguing exhibition because There are no artefacts here. They're all in Cairo and here a few replicas have been put up, but mainly this is an exhibition of how the tomb was found. British archaeologist Howard Carter
1: had been searching for years for yet undiscovered tombs in the Valley of the Kings, the burial site for almost all Egyptian pharaohs or kings of the 16th to 11th century BC. And it was while probing the craggy valley
0: slopes in 1922, he had a stroke of luck. What's really astonishing about the archaeological find of King Tutankhamun's tomb is that when the archaeologist Howard Carter and his team found the entrance, it was hidden behind later tombs in the Valley of the Kings. So nobody knew it was there. But Howard Carter suspected it was there. In fact, he was nearly
1: certain that the tomb for the little-known king, Tutankhamun, was somewhere in the valley. So in a final last field season, before his frustrated patron, Lord Carnarvon, pulled support after years of fruitless effort, Howard Carter took one more stab at the slab of Egyptian rock. Over months of work, his team removed all the debris outside the tomb. And then one day, the work suddenly stopped. Everyone was silent. The workers stared they had uncovered some steps.
0: And at the bottom of the steps, they found a sealed doorway, which they opened just a crack to see what was inside. There was a tiny hole, and Howard Carter put his eye to that hole and was asked, what can you see? And he said, I see wonderful things, wonderful things. And truly inside the antechamber that he could see were gilded burial gifts beds and the chariots taken apart piece by piece and the pots of unguents and wonderful aromatics all packed up and ready for the king in his afterlife there were four rooms in the tomb the first the antechamber that howard carter and his team had looked into to begin with but behind a walled up doorway was another chamber the burial chamber i'm just coming around the corner and through a doorway here recreated is the entrance into the burial chamber itself and inside is a reconstruction of the gilded cabin in which the coffins of tutankhamun were encased one of them of solid gold and this is what this exhibition does there are no artifacts Those are in Cairo Museum, but it recreates the atmosphere of discovery. What's unique about King Tutankhamun's tomb was that it was virtually intact. Others had been looted, so we didn't really know exactly how the burial gifts were laid out. King Tut's tomb showed archeologists that burial in ancient Egypt was on an entirely different scale than we'd even imagined. Most tombs in the Valley of the Kings are decorated with fabulous paintings, reds and gold, and that amazing strong Egyptian blue. But this, with all of its gold and its gilding, was an entirely different scale, and showed that ancient Egypt had been incredibly rich at the time of King Tutankhamun.
2: Well, that was truly a fabulous tour, Emma. I have to ask, you know, there were hundreds of ancient Egyptian pharaohs, kings and queens, thousands of mummies have been found. Why are we so fascinated by King Tutankhamun?
0: A lot of it's got to do with the general level of that sophistication of the craft working in the tomb, the jewellery and the objects, the furniture but really mainly to do with the bling. There was so much gold in that tomb. It was just astonishing. And already at this time of the discovery of Tut's tomb, Egyptologists thought they really did know about how um, the lavish lifestyles of the pharaohs were from all the tomb paintings that they'd already seen. But they weren't prepared to witness the opulence of this intact tomb. Are
2: you just. Disc- it as sort of bling. Give me an idea what the blingiest bling was in that crypt.
0: It's difficult to put your finger on one object, Seth. I mean, this was a room just full of glittering surfaces. You've got all the semi-precious stones, all the metals, richly carved objects, intricate uh, jewellery. It was just astonishing. And some of the best items, of course, were on the body itself. So, Once they've gone through the storage antechamber with its amazing gilded beds with heads of lions and their feet and the tails even, your bed has a tail, I want a bed with a tail. And they get into the burial chamber itself, which was essentially a wall of glittering gold. It was a gilded box, almost the size of the chamber itself. There is Tut's uh, mummy holding the crook and flail of uh, to show his status and with an amazing necklace on and also the, the amazing mask, the solid gold mask.
2: Can you give me any idea when Tutankhamun was, uh, you know, around? Absolutely. He was born about 1333
0: BC and he was the last in the line of these 18th dynasty kings. So all of his ancestors before had done amazing things such as extending the geographical range of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates in the north and down into uh, what's modern day Sudan in the south. And there they've got um, control, of course, of the gold mines and all the sub-Saharan trade with exotic animals and wonderful woods. And that was part of how rich Tutankhamun became, and hence the richness of his tomb, really.
2: So if I understand this correctly, King Tut's importance to us was not his foreign policy or his domestic policy or the taxes he either raised or lowered or anything like that, but that he had the good fortune to be buried in the single burial crypt that wasn't disturbed until modern times when Howard Carter went in there. Absolutely, Seth. I mean, it's just almost pure luck. What did we actually learn about ancient Egypt that we didn't know by getting into Tutankhamun's crypt there? It really got across to us as
0: archaeologists, I think, the the absolute importance of the afterlife for Egyptians, that the pharaoh... Really was the rich and, and lavishly um, decorated person that we'd seen in statues and on tomb walls, and and here was one encased, entombed in gold and richness.
2: Now, what was the belief with respect to burial in ancient Egypt? Obviously, they mummified the you know the the king, the pharaoh, uh, wrapped him up as it were, and then buried him with all this stuff. I mean, what was What was the idea? What was the cultural story behind doing this?
0: It was really important for Egyptians to know about the afterlife. And the pharaoh was actually the um, interceding point between all Egyptians and their gods. But, you know, thousands of years before Tutankhamun even got to the throne, some of these rituals that they use in his burial were being developed um, by ancient Egyptians who hadn't even become civilized yet, you know, how they were buried with um, cups and with vases of unguents and with special slates for breaking down um, eye makeup on and all sorts of interesting things in their tombs and obviously rituals that go into their burial way, way, way before the pyramids even.
2: You know, just trying to understand the culture, Emma, that was prevalent at that time, the idea that there was an afterlife, that's not particularly novel. Many people, uh, you know, subscribe to that point of view even today. But the fact that the leader was going to be needing all the artifacts of his daily existence in the afterlife, that's certainly unusual. We don't do anything like that. And, of course, building these giant monuments to to their leaders, that's also a little unusual. All ancient Egyptians had um,
0: an interest in how... The tombs were built for their leaders because the pharaoh was essentially a god. You asked about, um, you know, building the, the pyramids. At the pyramids in Giza, there's a huge workmen's village and cemetery, and in fact, even a sort of another settlement that had grown up alongside the workmen's settlement, where we can see how, you know, who was there building the pyramids. And you know, it took about ten thousand people to build those pyramids, so it's a
2: huge settlement and a huge cemetery. They, they were not slaves, by the way, right? No, I mean, they were not. Pay, they were paid for their work. They were
0: paid, and in fact, they were paid hugely. We found masses of animal bones. There's cattle, sheep, and uh, goats as well. So they, they know that, I mean, we know that basically there was 4,000 pounds of meat provided per day for this community.
2: I mean, you know, Egypt is this country where there's, a, at least ancient Egypt, there was a lot to do in the spring, you had to plant the crops, there was a lot to do in the fall, you had to harvest the crops. But for the rest of the year, you know, you're sort of sitting around. And uh, so maybe these public works projects were to keep everybody happy when they weren't doing their jobs. Could
0: be, Seth. I mean, one of the main things about Egypt that we don't see today, modern Egypt isn't quite the same in one big respect, and that's the River Nile. So up until the sort of 50 and the sort of 1930s, and then again in the 60s, that was when the big dams were built across the River Nile, upstream, um, right on the border between modern Sudan and Egypt itself. Before then, every year the Nile would flood, and the flooding comes down um, in about June time. So it would just basically flood out all the fields, bring this wonderful fertile soil down with it, and that's what built essentially the ancient Egyptian civilization, was this amazing fertility of the ground. So these people weren't sitting around doing nothing (laughs) during the summer, they just literally couldn't get to their fields. So, Seth, I know you're a really big fan of ancient Egypt. What would you say your favorite aspects are?
2: Well, that's hard to say, I must say, but I am a fan. When people ask me, you know, well, you've traveled a lot. What would you recommend uh, as a destination for my own travels? I almost always say Egypt. Egypt is the most interesting place. And I think it's because it, it has this... Sort of mysterious aura about it, right? These practices of burying the pharaohs, the fact that there were pharaohs, the fact that there wasn't a revolution for thousands of years that, you know, would uh, upset the the reign of the pharaohs. All these things, you know, they just appeal to me. Maybe it's because they've been so often used in popular media as stories, right? Looking for the hidden treasure of this, that, and the other. It all goes back to ancient Egypt. That's true. And
0: the, the curses of the mummy. And it's a fabulous place to visit as well. And of course, wonderfully, in the next short time, there is a new museum in just outside of Cairo, in fact, up by the pyramids. And it's the Grand Egyptian Museum. It should open in the early next year. And that will display all those 5000 objects for the very first time. They've never been in the same place. Some of them have been in store since they were removed from the tomb. There's a huge amount of conservation at the Grand Egyptian Museum that's been taking place over the last 10 years. So it's going to be fabulous to see everything back together again. And you'll be glad to know, Seth, that the old museum, the original Egyptian museum that was opened um, at the beginning of the 1900s in Tahrir Square in the center of Cairo, has been renovated and brought back to how it was when it was first built, because that is the home of Egyptology.
2: Emma Bentley, thanks so very much for speaking with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Seth. Emma Bentley is a postgraduate student in
1: archaeology and ancient world at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. She is also an occasional reporter for this program. A hundred years ago, British archaeologist Howard Carter and his team used shovels and pickaxes to crack open the tomb of King Tut. How can modern tools uncover the secrets of Egypt without disturbing a single
4: stone? We've mapped over 800 of these tombs, and there are about another 1,200 or so that we have left to to map just at this one site alone. So that's thousands of tombs and many, many other sites in Egypt.
2: The world of space archaeology next. This episode of Big Picture Science, giving us a peek into the ancient past, is called Tomb with a View. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. As we've heard, ancient tombs and pyramids are victims of destruction by tomb raiders, but they're also vulnerable to the physical act of excavation itself. But now a suite of high-tech instruments is helping us access the ancient world by providing non-invasive ways of doing archeology, span at least during an initial survey that will tell us what remains remain to be discovered. Does that mean that archeology span work boots and brushes are no longer needed on the ground?
1: Sarah Parkak is a space archaeologist who uses satellites to detect ancient cities, tombs, and temples. And she gives us the big picture of doing archaeology from the biggest vista possible,
4: space. What I do is I start from on high and then I delve into uh, stuff on the ground. So my work deals with using diverse satellites and aerial imagery, Um, sometimes taken from drones, sometimes taken from airplanes, to map where specific sites are or where there are features on sites, and we then go and excavate them or explore them or dig them up.
2: So you're checking out, or I should say, looking for archaeological spots of interest from space using satellites. Now, are these satellites, uh, you know, making imagery at visible wavelengths? I mean, are they simply making photos of the ground of the type that our cameras do?
4: So the imagery that we use covers a sort of a diverse range of the light spectrum. Of course, we can see visibly, but it goes beyond into the near-middle far-infrared, thermal-infrared, and of course, microwave parts. And different satellites get different information from different parts of the light spectrum. So we get to pick and choose whether the satellites come from, whether it's NASA, whether it's a commercial satellite. So it just depends on what imagery we're using.
2: So you basically order the imagery, right? I mean, you don't build satellites. You just, you know, say, look, I'd like imagery of this area of Egypt, and they send it to you?
4: Uh, So, yeah, so we order, you can order imagery now uh, off the Internet. You know, most NASA satellite imagery is free. There are millions of NASA satellite images anyone can download. There are a number of commercial uh, satellite imagery companies, and they also have sometimes tens of millions of satellite images Online and more often than not, probably 95 times out of 100, you know, they have the imagery you want. Once in a blue moon, you need to special order imagery. And of course, if you're doing imagery of sites using drones, that then you're free to image whenever you want.
2: Are you free to use drones? I mean, does the government of Egypt allow you to fly the drones wherever you want?
4: No. So in in Egypt, um, archaeologists are not allowed to bring their own drones. If you're working with a, a TV company, sometimes a TV company can come in and um, get aerial imagery, um, but generally speaking, you know, it's, it's illegal to use drones. But in other parts of the world, you know, those rules and regulations don't apply. You can easily bring in drones and do whatever work you need doing.
2: Well, explain to me how you can find things with satellites that you couldn't find by just looking at, say, aerial photographs made with air- aircraft. I mean, there are lots of aerial reconnaissance available.
4: Right. And and certainly, you know, there's huge numbers of of aerial photographs, um, images taken from drones that are invaluable. You know, look at the the drought from this past summer in the UK when there were hundreds, if not thousands, of archaeological features revealed. And whether they were from drones or um, images taken from aircraft, right, they're things you can just see visibly because of the different ways of drying and things buried under the ground. But the work we do mostly uses the, the near and middle infrared. And this detects Uh, Changes in things like moisture or vegetation health um, allows you to see different chemical signatures of things like stones. Um, And all those put together when you process the imagery, you know, it allows you to see landscapes that are otherwise completely invisible to us uh, in the visible part of the light spectrum.
2: All right. Now, is it true that you've discovered at least 17 potential pyramids that people didn't know were in Egypt and, and a thousand lost tombs? Are are those numbers right? Those are incredible numbers.
4: So there are definitely thousands of tombs that are out there that we've mapped. Um, Many of them actually are looted. Um, We went, um, starting in 2015, at the site where I work in Egypt, the site called Lisht, and we've mapped over 800 of these tombs. And there are about another 1,200 or so that we have left to to map just at this one site alone. So that's thousands of tombs and many, many other sites in Egypt and in other places in the world, too. We've, we've mapped countless features you know, in Egypt. Um, you know, pyramids, it, it, it's hard to say. One has to be very careful when, when describing something as a potential pyramid. It could be a very large tomb called a mastaba that can have the same kind of square shape and it's just foundation. So you know, anything we find is suggestive until we get to go on the ground and confirm it. That's why we use words like potential, possible, could be. Uh, we use lots of hedge terms because we have to be careful.
2: So, I mean, this is not going to be big stuff like the Sphinx. It's going to be smaller than that, presumably.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, the Sphinx, it's, kind of, it's hard to miss. Uh, but but yeah. certainly, like whole, whole settlements, right, that are in the desert, um, there could be potential temples or um, palaces that are on archaeological sites. You know, even in the Valley of the Kings, there are still potential royal tombs that we don't know about that obviously could add a lot uh, to our knowledge of of the new kingdom so yeah as we as we keep going as we keep working right we're going to keep finding things just because egypt lasted for thousands of years and egyptology's only been around for a little over 200
2: <laughs> okay all right that sounds reasonable now you mentioned the valley of the kings there and you know it's just a sort of a rocky little canyon uh, in in the in the hills west of the nile I mean, could there be more hidden tombs? Howard Carter, when he found Tutankhamun's uh, tomb, you know, he kind of knew where to, to you know, hit the pickaxe. I mean, he knew where to dig. Do you think that there's actually substantially more to be found in places like that? Oh, for, for sure. You know, it's not
4: just the Valley of the Kings. There's the Valley of the Queens. There's the Valley of the Monkeys. And other Egyptologists have done, you know, extensive surveys showing areas where there could be potentially tombs. You know, we certainly don't have every king from the new kingdom. We're we're missing some of them. So I think for sure there are tombs that are there. And, you know, by the way, not just royal tombs, right? The last feature that was discovered there was like an embalming cache. So kind of something in the bedrock where you get to store your embalming tools, right? Because that's what's happening. So, yeah, I think definitely, hopefully within the next few years, you know, Egyptologists potentially may find more royal tombs there.
2: Yeah, well, that's encouraging in a way. I mean, it's, it would be a shame to think that this is all wrapped up, so to speak. Hey.
4: Is there? A... <laughs> we call those jokes in Egyptology, mummy jokes, not dad jokes.
2: Well, well, finally, Sarah, is, is there a limit to how far back you can go with this technique of using the satellites? I mean, obviously, thousands of years is possible in desert terrain, uh, and, and maybe tens of thousands of years old if there was any stuff but you know eventually things get eroded away how far back and is this technique useful so it depends on what you're looking for so you know obviously
4: going back to say you know a years ago or more right when we were just starting to leave africa and go into arabia or you know through north africa um you know it's not like we're, we're leaving large structures uh that can be found even in the desert so at that point in time right you have to think okay what would we leave behind we'd leave behind tools and animal bones And we would probably be living in places like caves. So in instances where you don't have remains, where it's much more ephemeral, right, you're looking for the water sources, you're looking for the lakes, you're looking for the old river courses. You find those, and then you can map these other smaller scatters of of, um, lithics, of bones. So you just have to think kind of there, then, then it's more like environmental reconstruction and where could potential sites be.
1: Sarah Parkak is an archeologist and Egyptologist at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, who has used satellite imagery to identify potential archeological sites in Egypt. She is also the author of Archeology from Space, How the Future Shapes Our Past. Well, there's another way that space is helping us to learn more about ancient Egypt, and it relies on modern physics.
5: I'm Richard Kuzis. I'm a nuclear physicist emeritus at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory.
2: Twelve hundred years before King Tut was buried in a tomb cut into the hillside in the Valley of the Kings, the pharaohs had their own man-made mountains, pyramids. Physicists are interested in those famous pyramids just west of the city of Cairo. The Great Pyramid is made up of about two million sandstone blocks, but it's not an entirely solid structure. For example, there's a narrow passageway to a burial chamber, and maybe there's more.
1: Physicist Richard Kuzis is among those taking advantage of subatomic particles that come from space to try to find undiscovered rooms or passages in these massive pyramids.
2: Well, these are particles that are produced when cosmic rays impinge upon Earth's atmosphere, and they're called muons. They rain down on us
5: all the time, but don't worry, they're going through your body right now. They're totally harmless. But these muons that are produced in the upper atmosphere manage to come down to the surface of the Earth, and they are highly penetrating. They can penetrate through the rock that makes up the pyramids.
1: And so, like the satellite imagery that Sarah Parkak is using, particle physics has become a modern tool of archaeology.
5: It allows you to make a measurement without disturbing the archaeology in any way. Uh, it has a limitation in that it takes a long time. Among the particles that collide with Earth, the muons are special. Other particles, like protons, are stopped in the upper atmosphere. Electrons are also stopped in the atmosphere. Gamma rays are stopped in the atmosphere. Most neutrons are stopped in the atmosphere, or those that make it to Earth can't penetrate through the pyramids. So muons happen to be the one particle produced in cosmic ray showers that can actually penetrate through the pyramids in fairly large numbers.
2: Okay, so what you're saying then, Richard, is that, you know, we're using the universe to supply the particles to make essentially an X-ray of these pyramids.
5: That's right, yeah. It's a good analogy to say that it's like an x-ray machine. Okay. Uh, Of course, x-rays are photons, but yes, it's analogous.
1: Well, Seth, if the muons are going through things, if they can travel through stone, for example, How is it that they can detect objects or structures the way that an x-ray does?
2: Yeah, well, uh, it's because, yes, they go through stone, but they are, you know, kind of impeded by stone a little bit. It's like x-rays. X-rays can go through everything, but they have a harder time going through bones or teeth or stuff like that. And that's what allows you to make a photo of, uh, you know your insides. So the muons are raining down on the pyramids and mostly they just go right through, but not all of them go right through because the stone does deflect some of them, except when there's a a void inside, an empty spot, a chamber, and then there's less deflection. So you see that in the picture. And there are a couple of different ways of detecting the muons, but one approach is just to use a piece of photographic film.
5: Exactly. In fact, in the measurements that were done on the large pyramid recently, the Japanese team actually did use photographic film as their detector. They put layers of photographic film down and detected the muons that way.
2: The detectors are placed inside the pyramid, I I suppose? Inside
5: the pyramid, yes, into the accessible rooms at the bottom of the pyramid. That's where they place their detectors, in several different locations.
1: So essentially, the scientists are making a time exposure like you do in photography.
2: Yes, but the resolution is not high, because you're limited by the number of muons in the muon-producing machine of the cosmos, and there's not much you can do about cranking that up.
1: (laughs) You don't have the right connections up there, huh? I see, well, Seth, did they find anything?
5: Yeah,
2: it was in the Great Pyramid, notable for containing the tomb of the pharaoh Khufu.
5: They identified a large room that appeared to be about halfway up inside the pyramid, above the known rooms, and this was an unknown cavity, so it's not known what's in that cavity, but there appears to be a large unknown cavity there.
2: When you say large, I mean, you mean the size of my living room, or do you mean the size of a bread box, or or a (laughs) truck, or what's
5: large? Yeah, more, more like several rooms, like living room size spaces. These are large spaces, similar to the ones where the tomb was discovered previously.
2: Is this technique that allows you to find these, if you will, hidden spaces, in the pyramid, does it have enough resolution? In other words, can it see, fine enough detail to see if there's anything in the rooms?
5: In general, no. The reason is that you have to absorb these muons. You have to scatter the muons or absorb them in order to show a difference, just like an x-ray. An x-ray sees bones because the bones absorb more of the x-rays than do skin. Same thing for a pyramid. The empty room doesn't absorb x-rays, or in this case, muons. Uh, whereas the stone does. So you're looking for voids in your image. But it doesn't, you know, you can't see wood, for example, or soft materials easily.
1: Seth, have they determined whether the void is uh, connected to the room that's containing the pharaoh's sarcophagus?
2: Well, it doesn't seem to be, but that raises a mystery. What was the function of those voids? Why were they built into the pyramid?
5: You know, we don't know anything about them. There's no record that I'm aware of that talks about them. They obviously have been hidden for thousands of years. So who knows what their purpose was? Does this sort of
2: technology, this capability, shed any light on questions such as how the
5: pyramids were built? Well, definitely. It can tell us about the structural engineering that went into designing the pyramid and the fact that they could create these large voids and uh, have them disconnected in some way. So it's, it's really interesting to find out why they did this. I think this whole subject
2: is something that the public can really relate to. And I really and look forward to anything more that they're going to find. I hope they do find some stuff.
5: I do, too. I think it's a fascinating field and really interesting. And hopefully we'll see some near-term results coming out of these investigations.
2: Physics in the service of archaeology. What a nice idea. Richard Kouzes, thank you so very much for speaking with us. Thank
5: you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you.
1: Richard Kuzas is a physicist at the Department of Energy's Pacific Northwest Laboratory. Next, what big questions in Egyptology remain, but also the latest science
3: and how to make a mummy they all keep their hearts because the heart is supposed to be where your soul resides so you need it for your reanimation in the afterlife
2: king tut wasn't the only one to get a good rap in ancient egypt the egyptians mummified countless animals as well
1: this episode of big picture science is tomb with a view hello everyone you may recognize me as gabby from the history of everything podcast
2: Dr. Salima Ikram is one of the foremost Egypt archaeologists. She joins us now from the American University in Cairo, where she is a professor of Egyptology. She offers her thoughts about the question we asked at the top of the show, Why do we continue to be fascinated with ancient Egypt? But first,
1: no discussion on the anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb would be complete without wrapping our minds around one of the most intriguing practices of ancient Egypt. Dr. Ikram can talk about that too, because she is the head of the Animal Mummy Project at
3: the Egyptian
1: Museum in Cairo.
3: I think it probably would be easier to give you a list of the ones they didn't mummify because they mummified things from teeny-weeny shrews to scarab beetles to enormous, you know, 25-foot-long crocodiles and lions. We have a couple of lions, not a huge number, but cats and dogs, cows, bulls, monkeys, baboons and snakes. So you can see that there's rather a large corpus of what was mummified. You mentioned dogs, but thousands of dogs, right? No,
1: no, millions and millions. <laughs> <laughs> millions, goodness. And recently, in the last couple of years, a pair of rare mummified
3: lions were discovered. I believe they were cubs. So Diodorus siculus, as well as Herodotus, have written about the fact that Somewhere in Saqqara, there are galleries and galleries filled with lion mummies, which some of us have been in hot pursuit of.
1: We want to hear how they did this, but let's jump right to what this means about the relationship of the ancient Egyptians with animals. Um, Why did they mummify
3: this menagerie of creatures? Well, the ancient Egyptians have a very interesting relationship with animals because, of course, animals are key to survival, And also for the Egyptians, animals were sort of intermediaries with the gods because they were neither quite human, they weren't also living in a divine sphere, but they seemed to be able to communicate with nature and understand nature, which is the land of the gods really, how things happen, what happens, what doesn't happen, completely. I want to follow up on the reasons for mummification. I think we can all identify
1: with loving and treasuring animals, certainly. But mummifying them suggests that they could bring them with them. And then what did they think would happen to that animal in the afterlife or that animal's soul? Well, A, the Egyptians believed that the
3: animals had souls. And also they thought that the animals could have the same kind of afterlife or a certain kind of afterlife, because if they were a pet, then they would be reunited with their owner and they'd all hang out and do whatever they did in life. If they were food, they would continue to be food. But then if they were sacred animals or votive offerings, they would then have a slightly different role in the afterlife. Let's talk a
1: bit about how they mummified these animals. And I, I know that you have done some of this yourself in your lab. They use something called natron. Uh, what is
3: that and how do they apply it and how does it begin this mummification process? Well, natron is one of the key ingredients for mummification because it's a, basically a combination of salt and baking soda and it defats as well as desiccates. And it's found naturally in the Wadi Natrun, which is not far from Cairo. And then this is used to basically, once you have your dead person or dead animal, um, you eviscerate them, you wash them out, and then you pack them inside and out in powdered natron, which sucks out the liquids and the fats, leaving you with a preserved body. Does it come as as a rock? Natron basically precipitates along the edges of these lakes that are filled with this in the Wadi Natrun. And so when you collect it, it's sort of chunky and whitish or whitish grey. And then you take it and you break it up. But you can even, you know, if you just rub it between your hands, if it's not too hard, it turns into a powder. Then, of course, if you grind it really hard, it turns into a very fine kind of dust I see. And and what sort of quantities are we talking about? Because
1: it's one thing to mummify a beetle or a cat, but another thing to mummify a
3: bull. How much natron would you need to mummify, you know, a bull or a crocodile? Well, that is a very good question. And in fact, one that I'm struggling with, because I'm hoping in the fall of next year at the Houston Museum of Natural History to actually mummify a Texas longhorn. and. I'm trying to calculate how much it will take and I have no idea because I can just extrapolate that it was, you know, 200 kilos for my sheep. So how much would it be for something much larger? Also depends, you know, on how fat the creature was in its life. So it is a challenge. When you attempt to mummify this longhorn,
1: we can say that this is not your first rodeo, appropriate because you are going to Texas, right? It's not your first mummification rodeo because you've been mummifying animals in your lab. And I understand you mummified rabbits and there was an interesting, dramatic finish, should we say, to the control rabbit. Can you give us an overview of what you did in your lab? And then, and then do tell us how you finished this process. But what happened to the rabbits?
3: Well, Flopsy was the control bunny. <laughs> And we didn't do anything much but put her into Natron. And so she bloated up with gases, as one might expect, and somewhat exploded at the end. And there was a very awful stink in the biology lab. And those wussy people made us take the rabbit away. Um, And we then moved our entire operation to the roof of the science building. And then, Mopsy, we prepared in a different way by eviscerating and exsanguinating. And the Egyptians probably wouldn't exsanguinate, but we were getting all the rabbits from the butchers, so he decided to be extra helpful. So I have to point out that all of the rabbits were destined to be eaten, so the fact that we turned them into mummies meant that they live forever and are remembered forever, so they probably have a better afterlife than if they'd been in someone's stew. Uh, Then we had another rabbit, Peter, and then we had Thumper, and then... The last rabbit, what we did was we put an enema of cedar oil into the rabbit, because we'd read about this process being carried out in Herodotus, who was a 5th century BC historian, and scholars were very sceptical about using this. But basically, cedar oil, or juniper oil, is a lot like turpentine, and it can strip paint. And indeed, this oil, when put into the bunny with an enema, basically, and then you sort of stuff up the hole and you leave it in the natron and then you remove the stopping up thing and push the rabbit's belly, all of the entrails have melted and they squirt out. So I can safely say that the cedar oiled enema way of mummification is entirely possible and can be very successful. Well Salima, if you are taking out the water and you're taking out the
1: blood, in the case of at least humans, you're taking out the organs, take out the organs
3: in the brain. Okay, with animal mummies, it's basically identical to what is done with best quality human mummies, except you don't take out the brain. Because most of the brains in the animals are so small that they're not really going to putrefy or nothing's going to happen, so they just leave those in then what is it that you are preserving? So the mummification, the whole process of desiccation and defatting, gives you the bones, the tendons, all of those kinds of things, some of the flesh, and the skin and hair and scales or feathers, depending on what you are.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's enough to carry the, the animals into the afterlife.
3: Yes, and they all keep their hearts because the heart is supposed to be where your soul resides, so you need it for your reanimation in the afterlife.
1: There's a fascination with mummies, and in the Western world we use words like exotic or odd or weird to describe them, but it strikes me that these are words that convey our lapse in reflecting on our own cultural rights that serve similar purposes. In other words, we we look for ways to distance ourselves from other civilizations when we actually may have a lot more in common that we're not identifying.
3: I think, Molly, that people who are religious do see the similarities much more than people who are not. And in terms of weirdness, I mean, think of the Victorians they would do their best to almost, you know, some kind of preservation. But even while people were busy putrefying, they'd be having family portraits taken with them. And their albums full in the Victorian era of people with their families, and you have to try and spot who's dead. I've seen those photos. They are really yeah. um, unsettling. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I think it's quite interesting um, to see the variations that there are a- around the world and through time with how people interact with their dead. And I think now a lot of people in urban places in the West in particular like to distance themselves from death. The whole culture is about being young and beautiful and uh, the idea of death is anathema, whereas in other cultures and generally in earlier times, people recognise that death was part of life and you're part of a bigger picture. And so it was more assimilated into everyone's existence. You lead the Animal Mummy Project, but you know, you're involved
1: in so many projects and, and, and an expert in so many areas of Egyptology. Can you give us an idea of what some of the um, big picture questions are that remain?
3: Well, I think that there are lots of questions that we will have from now until forever. Anything having to do with religion, I don't think we'll ever have a clear idea of. Um, we are getting increasingly more data to understand daily life, you know, things, where did people eat, what did they eat, where did they sleep, bathrooms, kitchens, um, things like that, family structure, kinship structure, relationships. Um, the role of the king. I mean, questions about how much power did the king really have? I still don't know completely how Egyptians were mummified or the animals were mummified because I don't have all of the ingredients and I don't have all the steps, which is why I keep carrying out experiments. How did people bring huge logs from, of cedar trees from Lebanon to Egypt? Was it always on boats? Did it come over land? Um, bits of history... How much power did Tutankhamun really have? And where are all the missing kings and queens of Egypt buried? And is it appropriate to ask the question, we refer to ancient Egypt as ancient
1: Egypt, of course, because it was 3,000 or 4,500 years ago. Do modern Egyptians or Egyptians today feel a connection to that history or does it just feel like ancient history to them? I guess another Another
3: way of putting this is, why is it important to study ancient civilizations? Well, those are two questions. And I think that the modern Egyptians, some of them feel a kinship with their ancestors, but it depends on the individual, so one can't really speak for the entire population. I think some people feel more connected to the ancient pharaonic past than others. And why do we study the past? Why does anyone study history? Why do you care about the American Revolution or 1066 or um, the French Revolution or anything? This is our human history. This is our shared past. This is how the bits and pieces that make us who we are today, not just as people but our ideas, our ideologies, the world around us, the political constructs, our art, our literature, our music. And Much of it is a shared history, because we try to think, you think of, you know, ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Greece or Rome. But in fact, all of these cultures were interconnected. And in their time, they realized the interconnections and the exchanges of ideas and technologies that occurred. So really, we are a product of our past, and it would be a shame to lose our understanding of that. And also there's so much beauty in it that I think that to ignore it is also silly and wasteful. And remember, they were just people who had the same hopes, fears, aspirations as we do today. Salima Ikram, thank you so
1: much for joining us. What a lovely conversation. Well, thank you too.
2: Salima Ikram is professor of Egyptology at the American University in Cairo and has worked as an archaeologist in Turkey, Sudan, Greece, and the United States. She is the head of the Animal Mummy Project at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo.
1: Well, Seth, that brings us to the big picture of this program. And I wanted to connect a couple ideas that I heard, and that is the virtual experience that Emma and I shared of King Tut's tomb and compare it with seeing the tombs, in person. Do you think that it's important to see these objects in person or that could they just be experienced the same way virtually?
2: Well, I mean, it's obviously a different experience. I don't know that's essential to do that. You can study Egypt, you know, your entire life without ever going to Egypt. But I have to say, I've been to Egypt a couple of times. And really, walking into those tombs, not just King Tut's. King Tut's was not as impressive as some of the others. But, you know, just seeing the hieroglyphics on the wall and realizing that Thousands of years ago, some Egyptian artisan was standing right where you were standing, you know, painting these things. I mean, there's something different about that, of course.
1: So it sounds like it's really a kind of intimate experience in that it's bringing you closer to these individuals who lived 3,000 to 4,000 years ago.
2: Yeah, it's a lived experience, put it that way. I mean, you know, it's one thing to, to study any ancient society, but it's something else to go there and be where they were and to see the things not in a photograph, but there they are. You can, you can touch them if they let you touch them. <laughs> were
1: you surprised to hear in this program that um, there's still so much that we don't know about ancient Egypt and, indeed, lots still to be discovered?
2: Yeah, no, that is interesting. I mean, uh, the comment by Dr. Parkak that there were hundreds of pyramids that we had not yet investigated, presumably smaller ones, but still, that there is so much that hasn't been studied in ancient Egypt. On the one hand, I just find that exciting, honestly. I mean, you know, it's it's the, the lure of the ancient societies. And as I've uh, told you, Molly, and also our listeners, I think of all the places I've visited, none has been as impressive as Egypt. Yeah, and, and to map the interior, the pyramids, I mean, the whole muon story, you know, these non-invasive, if you will, technologies, indeed. I mean, because in the time of Howard Carter 100 years ago, He couldn't have envisioned this kind of uh, uh, reconnaissance that you can do without having to chip away the rock and find a path on the inside of that tomb. It's, it's, It's amazing.
1: This show would not be possible without the talent of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support from NASA, Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include understanding the history of civilizations. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
1: The original music in the program was created by June Miyaki and Dewey Delay. This episode of Big Picture Science, which provides a new look at ancient Egypt, is called Tomb with a View.